Just a quick disclaimer for this week's episode. This is the first time we've recorded with a guest, so uh, if there's any technical issues with the sound or anything like that, I'm sure that you could find it in your kindly hearts to forgive us. There might also be a little bit of background noise from the rain, so you get the lovely calming patter of rain on the castle roof this week for a little bit. So apologies about that. This is Castle Stories, a podcast from Newcastle Castle about the rich history of the Northeast. Hello, welcome to Castle Stories. I'm your host, David Silk. Um, this week, we're going to be moving sideways away from medieval myths a little bit, although we will still, still hopefully be enlightening you about real medieval life in Newcastle. Uh, I was looking through some transcribed historical documents the other week, very exciting life I lead, and I came across a bit that was simultaneously really interesting and kind of dead boring at the same time. It's a Murridge grant from 1327, which sounds very dull and sort of is. It's a law passed allowing the merchants to collect special customs payments from ships that were coming to trade in the town, as long as they used that money to pay for the construction of the town wall. So it's basically just a long list of trade goods with how much they could charge for each item, which is kind of dead boring on the face of it. But it is also interesting for a few reasons. Number one, it tells us that the town walls were still being built in 1327, which is more than 50 years after they were started. Because the people of the town were paying for it themselves, I guess, rather than the king paying for it in a wonner, it took a long time to get them finished. So that and the fact that they are some of the most massive town walls anywhere in Britain, you know, meant that they took a long time. We're probably going to do a future episode on Newcastle's town walls, so I will shut up about them. The other reason the Murridge Grant is interesting, I think, though, is that it shows us a really comprehensive list of the kinds of things that were being imported into medieval Newcastle, and therefore what kind of trade links Newcastle had with the wider world. So, scattered among the future episodes, I'm just going to do little episodes on particular trade goods, things that were for sale in medieval Newcastle. How they were made and manufactured in the medieval period, what they were used for, uh, where they came from, and stuff like that. And it should hopefully give you a bit of an idea of what medieval Newcastle was like and, you know, what kind of links it had to the, the world around it. And uh, I thought we'll start with linen cloth because I'm lucky enough to have an expert on all things linen and flaxen with me this week, um, Rosie Bristow. Hello. Um, Rosie is currently studying an MSc in Fashion and Textiles at Heriot Watt University, which is in Edinburgh, but you're not in Edinburgh, you're here. I am. I've come to visit. I had a musical performance to perform at yes. the stage, but also I wanted to come and hang out with Dave and talk about flax. There you go. Rosie Rosie loves both accordion and flax. It's like the, the two sides of her personality. Um, so uh, in between playing the accordion, she is doing flaxy things at Heriot Watt. So... As part of the project for that, well, I'll let her tell you about her project for that. So, uh, Rosie, before we start on the medieval flax stuff, Mm -hmm. can you tell us a little bit about the project that you're up to at the moment? Yes. So I'm doing a very exciting project of trying to grow my own clothes from scratch. So at the moment, we've just planted about a hectare of flax, of uh, Nathalie variety flax, and I'm collaborating with a farmer called George Young, who's down at Fobbing Farm in Essex. And he has sent me some pictures of the little baby shoots that have just Ooh. come out last week. So that's very exciting. And then over the summer, I'm planning to make some processing equipment. I'm making a roller breaker and a rotor heckler. They sound excellent, I have yeah. to say. Um, <laughs> roto heckler sounds yeah. like some kind of killer robot. That's great. Yeah, yeah. Um, hopefully... That won't happen, but it is a prototype, so who knows? Um, (laughs) um, And then, yeah, so later in the year, we'll be processing the flax into yarn and then hopefully at some point weaving it and maybe even making some clothes. 
and I'm doing this as part of my dissertation research but also just as a extracurricular project because I'm very excited about this as a excellent as a concept grow your own clothes I mean that is pretty uh, yeah that is pretty cool to be fair so. um and yeah I think it's really important because a lot of fabric that's made now is synthetic and huge amounts of it just go to landfill and then it doesn't decompose whereas if you make a natural fiber garment then you can compost it at the end of its life and it's all a nice soil to soil circular cycle excellent Um, yeah that that is actually funnily enough um that is one of the things archaeologists don't like linen it appears in written records for historical things but it very rarely appears in the archaeological record because it rots yes. um, more easily even than wool it kind of rots away to nothing so it's being imported into newcastle mm-hmm. in um, the medieval period i sort of always assumed flax grows in this country as well but can you take us through the stages of how flax is used in the middle ages how it's processed what are the stages of actually getting the plant which is flax and making it into linen yes okay so after you've planted it It takes about 100 days to grow to its full height and then you want to harvest it by pulling it directly out of the ground so that you get its full length so the fibres exist in the stalk so you can use the full length of the plant from the root up to the little flowery seed heads at the top. And after you've pulled it all out of the ground, you would then lay it down in the field to ret. And retting's the first stage and it comes from rotting. And you can either dew ret it with the like morning dew, and that takes maybe two to six weeks, depending on the weather, or you can water ret it by submerging it in a local pond or a big butt of water or whatever. And that's a lot quicker, but also it smells really, really bad and makes the water incredibly unpleasant so yeah there's a lot of talk about that in medieval records actually where particularly in uh, other countries where flax has grown really commonly they talk about the rivers being polluted and you're certainly not allowed to do it up river from kind of villages and things you've yeah. got to be uh, you've, yeah yeah, you've yeah. Be no i think um, yeah the farm i'm using we're definitely going to leave it in the field to ret because the river we're near is the thames and it's quite populated yeah um, <laughs> Yes, don't poison the good people Uh, of London with your flax. Um, And then the next stage is rippling, which is the removal of the seed heads. So if you want to use them for eating or oiling cricket bats or whatever else you do with them linseed oil Ah, used for a lot of different uh, oil paints that kind of thing, very multifunctional and then you can obviously they have to be like dried out after they've retted and then the next stage is breaking so you can there's a few different types of hand tools one of which is a sort of big wooden jaws that you crimp them in between and one of which is more like a sort of mangle that you post them in between okay and all of the woody center like falls away and is broken up and then the next stage is scutching for which you need a scutching knife which is like a big wooden knife these all have great names, I have to say. Like, yeah. It's one of the things I really like about traditional crafts is that every stage has its own bizarre name. Yeah, that, um, yeah, yeah. it was very exciting. I learned all about it at Flaxland, which I would strongly recommend to anybody that wants to know more, go to Flaxland. Where is Flaxland? Um, Flaxland is near Stroud. Okay. Um, and it's the only reason anyone will ever have to go to Stroud, I think. Um, it? No, it's, really, it's very lovely. It's run by a lovely couple, uh, Simon and Anne. 
and they can take you through all of the different processes and show you how to do it. Fabulous. Um, so yeah, so you scutch it, which is basically scraping. So you scrape off the remaining bits of like woody core and the remaining skin. And what you're left with is long hair-like fibres. And it's a really fun process to do because you sort of suddenly realise why people might be described as having flaxen hair because it really does resemble long, straight, silvery hair and it has a really nice sort of shiny like luster to it. And then the next stage is heckling or hackling, which is essentially combing. So you comb it with increasingly fine combs until you've separated out the long line flax, which is what you want to spin into fine fibres for making shirts or whatever, from the toe. And the toe is the like shorter sort of fluffier or more tangled broken bits and that's often used to do coarser spinning so that's what you'd use to make toe rope yeah for example and yeah so after you've heckled you then would dress a distaff which is well the one i've used looks like a witch's hat actually it's like a big cone and you spread out the heckled flax very, very thin and sort of wind it around the comb so that it's all spread out in hundreds of thin layers. And then once you've done that, you tie a ribbon around it and then that's when you can start spinning. And if you've dressed the distaff correctly, that makes spinning very easy. And if you've done it wrong, then it just gets <laughs> in knots and is a complete nightmare. Yeah, I mean, distaff spinning is a, a real art. There are um, That's been practised since the Middle Ages. There's loads of illustrations of people spinning from distaffs. Was so much a, a thing, in fact, the, the female side of the family um, in law is known as the distaff side. Mm. It was, seems like um, emblematic of women in the Middle Ages. Yeah. Um, this tool um, yeah. for, for holding on to your, your fibres yeah. um, before spinning. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So that would be my main recommendation if you want to try it yourself is like put a lot of time and effort into dressing the distaff properly yeah. and that will save you future headaches. <laughs> yeah. And then you can spin using a drop spindle or a great wheel or a spinning wheel depending on what time period you're in um yeah the the great wheel i think comes in the 1300s in england certainly but most processing for this sort of thing is done with a drop spindle which is spinning by hand which i mean it must be an incredibly time-consuming process to yes. do all this by hand i can kind of see why you're trying to make machinery to do it really yes yeah. yes i'm hoping to make some machinery um. <laughs> That would be great. Yeah, because, um, yeah, I mean, doing this by hand would be, like many jobs in the Middle Ages, really, it's fantastically involved and time-consuming. How people worked out, I always find it amazing how people worked out the various stages that you've got to mm. go through. It's such a kind of lengthy scientific process, really, to yeah. get all that sorted. So what sort of things in the Middle Ages is linen being used for, as opposed to, like, other cloths, like wool or, or whatever? So I think linen makes very good undergarments, sort of shirts or whatever medieval equivalent of underpants is. Um, yeah, your braise. So yes. men wore a kind of uh, something called braise or breeches, which are kind of like knee length boxer shorts and a chemise for ladies. Like yes. a long game. So, um, yeah, one of the qualities of bast fibres, of which, uh, yeah, linen is a type of bast fibre, is that it wicks away moisture so it makes really good clothing to wear if you're doing like sweaty work or it's really hot and you want to have the moisture wicked away from you so and that's also why it makes really good bed sheets obviously i think in medieval times that would be a very fancy expensive thing to have 
Um, Relatively speaking, although we did mention last week in our episode on peasants that linen bedsheets do actually appear in even peasants' um, inventories from time to time, tablecloths and bedsheets mm-hmm. and things like that of linen as well as clothing. Yeah, so those are the sort of like more homeware things. And then bast fibres also make very good uh, ropes, like the tow ropes we talked about and um, sailcloth again because they absorb water so if they get wet at sea they actually become stronger which is obviously a desirable quality in a ship very I would imagine yeah (laughs) I mean that's certainly I know Newcastle does have a a shipbuilding industry from the middle ages onwards there are records of kings ordering ships to be built and it's the kind of thing that you forget about when you're talking about shipbuilding we think about carpenters Mm -hmm. putting the actual wooden parts of the ship together but there's miles and miles of rope needed for um, these kind of things as well so so yeah I mean Newcastle has a thriving wool trade in the medieval period wool was its main export Mm -hmm. um, for a long time was much flax being grown locally in England or is most of it imported into the country? So I think a lot of flax was grown in the UK for domestic use, but the really fine stuff was more grown in Flanders and actually in the Champagne region. Mm-hmm. Um, which, Very fancy. Yes. So that was where... So and, and it is still today. So if you want really fancy linen, it's all grown in the north. France and Belgium and the Netherlands in a little strip sort of. Is that to do with the climate or? Yeah I think it's a really good climate it needs to be you know quite rainy and it does quite well in England and the north of Europe. Northern Europe Um, yeah. Although it does grow elsewhere in the world it is grown in along the banks of the Nile a lot and it gets all its moisture from flooding so it's not exclusive to like drizzly uh, <laughs> okay drizzly yeah, I mean, areas of the world i think yeah the, the egyptians sort of famously i think they're like they're among the first people to grow and, and to make flax into linen mm-hmm. aren't they um flanders is interesting actually um newcastle has very strong trade links with flanders for other things that's where a lot of the wool that was sold out of newcastle's port was being sent down to oh, flanders okay. to be turned into cloth yeah um, and there's even quite a lot of people from flanders living in newcastle Throughout the medieval period, it's got quite a large community of people who were called Flemings at the time, which is uh, is a lovely name. But uh, yeah, there's a guy called Gilbert the Fleming. Great. Um, that tends to be how you get referred to in the Middle Ages. Your surname just tends to be the most notable feature about you. And in many people's cases, that was that they came from somewhere else. Yeah. So you have Gilbert the Fleming and people like that. His daughter mm. was actually at one time the richest person in Northumberland. Wow. So there was plenty of money to be made um, yeah. from the Flanders cloth trade so that would be like really fine posh linen essentially that's probably what we're looking at being important yeah i was i was reading up on it this morning in preparation for the podcast and um and it was yeah i was reading something that was saying that it could be so fine that you could use linen for veils it was like see-through almost amazing um so it was like very very fine quality and then obviously yeah maybe the more homegrown stuff was for your own personal clothes if you're a peasant and it was also actually a requirement in henry the time that you must grow hemp and i think flax as well but definitely hemp because he was so intent on like building a big navy the sort of first professional navy in europe and so he required that for every 60 acres of farmland you owned you must grow at least a quarter acre of hemp to go towards the national naval efforts so i imagine it was grown all over the country because anybody 
that had significant amount of land was legally required to grow it. Yeah, I mean, I guess they must have been using it in huge quantities to build mm. a navy. That is really so. Hemp is another bast fiber. What's yes. a, what, what does that mean? Like, so a bast, a bast fiber? fiber. So good examples are yeah, flax, hemp, and nettles are actually a bast fiber as right. well. And they're plants where you use the stalk itself. Um, has fibres inside that that's what you use to make into right. fabric. So unlike cotton, which is the hairs which grow on the seed, which which is sort of like, I don't know if you've seen a picture of it, but it looks like a little fluffy cotton yeah. ball on the top of the plant. Whereas, yeah, bast fibres um, use the fibres from inside the stalk. Right. Um, cotton's a really interesting one. It's not mentioned in the list of things being sold in Newcastle in 1327, but it was known about in England by that point. There's travellers' tales come back, talking of uh, trees that grow sheep um, <laughs> on them, which is is great. Um, so that's uh, their idea of like a, a tree that grows wool on it, I suppose, yeah. seems to be cotton. Yeah. And it's known by that, um, the name Al-Cotton is, is Arabic, like it's yeah. the, the original name. So it's being imported um, into England. It's mainly used for what we would describe as arming clothes. So um, the kind of clothing that was worn underneath armour mm-hmm. um, by knights, it was stuffed with cotton underneath mm-hmm. layers of linen. Nowadays, kind of cotton's an interesting one because most of our clothes, if they're not artificial fibres, are made of cotton. That's yes. probably the most common yeah, natural yeah, yeah, fibre. Which doesn't grow in this country. I mean, no. you can't grow cotton here. So no, no, how does cotton take over from linen and wool as the so go-to I think fabric? up until the sort of like 1700s, 1800s, the linen manufacturing was getting like more and more advanced. And I actually, for some of my research, I read through this huge section of a book that detailed every single piece of flax processing machinery that had been invented in the sort of mid-1800s, and it's a long list. Okay, yeah, I mean, they, very... were, they were quite big on that, weren't they? Yeah. I mean, this is when people were inventing, like, seed drills and, yeah, and what yeah, have yeah. You, things like that um, as well. So, so up until that point, it was a lot of people focused on that, but cotton really took over in popularity for two main reasons, one of which was the invention of the cotton gin, which was just, like, a much more efficient way of processing it. But actually, the main reason is because of slavery and capitalism, which is a very uncheerful reason as to why everything is now made of cotton, which is just that in America, they'd imported cotton from Africa and they'd imported African people who knew how to grow it, who were then being obviously completely exploited and... You know, if you're not paying people to farm, if you're just extracting their labour from them, then it's very cheap compared to if you're paying even sort of peasants in England, but they still get paid in some capacity. Well, yeah, I mean, it's hard to compete, I suppose, if you're a little industry in yeah working in Britain. If you've got to pay your workers, yeah. you can't really compete against slaves who aren't being paid can you yeah um, so i learned a lot about that from this really interesting um online learning resource called the slow factory foundation and they do all kinds of online lessons which you can either like sign up to see in person or you can just re-watch their like back catalogue and it's all to do with the history of fashion and how the history of fashion is really closely intertwined with the history of capitalism and the history of colonialism and slavery and yeah it's it's super fascinating and you can yeah I'd, I'd really recommend that if anybody's interested in like fashion history because it's a great website there's loads of great stuff on it yeah i mean we'd like to talk in sort of future episodes a bit more about the history of kind of fashion and clothing in middle ages in the northeast as well and um, i will pop links to all these series and things in the description so if you go to the website and have a little look in the description you'll see links to all of these things so 
Um, so there we are. That's kind of um, a, a very brief history of sort of flaxy goodness. I mean, we didn't even go into the, the ropery that used to be up on Shieldfield or Willington, where they were producing ropes in industrial quantities. I've, we, we've sort of stuck to the Middle Ages mostly. Um, if you're interested in Rosie's project, I will pop a link to that as well. Um, yes. You're looking for people to kind of volunteers to help out with, yes. um, so, with kind of processing this stuff, aren't you? Yeah, so we're hoping to have a kind of like educational day, but also we need help harvesting it which will be sometime in July. So if people are interested in that, yeah, please get in touch and you can come to the farm for the day and learn more about flax processing and help out with the harvest. And then we're also hoping to get people to test the yarn. So this will be much further in the future when we've actually turned it into something. Um, We'd love anybody who's excited about knitting or weaving or fashion that's like ethical, like eco-friendly fashion to have a bit of an experiment and see what they can make lovely yeah so there you go if you fancy being a peasant in july and uh, <laughs> helping rosie harvest her flax yeah um then uh, yeah do sign up for that otherwise keep uh, a track of the project and uh, yeah so next week we will be going back to medieval myths and um, we're going to be talking about medieval knights and their armor next week but for now that's us done so i'd like just to say a great big thank you to my guest rosie thanks for having me dave that's all right and uh, we'll see you all next week Castle Stories is a Newcastle Castle production. This week's host was David Silk. You can find out more about Castle Stories and about Newcastle Castle at newcastlecastle.co.uk.